And those last, that last line, grant us wisdom, grant us courage, that we fail not man nor thee, could not have been more appropriate for what I'm going to try to say this morning. Uh, Acts 10 is where we're reading from, Acts 10, and we're going to read beginning at verse 9. We're going to do that in just a minute. While you're finding that, let me do remind you, I, I know you've already been reminded today's picnic day. Please come up on Montesano when we finish here. You can go straight there, go get a sandwich, and tell them when you get to the, to the gate that you're with First Baptist and you'll get in free. I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll come. And this is going to, we have arranged for a, a beautiful uh, day, but if it were to rain, uh, I have uh, here a, a First Baptist Church of Huntsville umbrella, which I'd like to uh, show off. It has a lovely sleeve, which fits over it. And if you, and I'm not going to open it, some of the more superstitious among you might get nervous, but it says there, First Baptist Huntsville, you too can have one of these. They're on the First Baptist Church Marketplace. Go to fbchsv.org, and at the top there's a tab that says store, and um, you can um, you can get one. There are caps, there are Shirts, there are all kinds of things. You can represent First Baptist Church. Don't do it. Don't, don't wear a cap with First Baptist Church on it and yell at the umpires at the baseball game. But if you're going to be nice, if you're going to be nice, get one. Represent the church well. That's just a little commercial for FBC Marketplace. This sermon brought to you by First Baptist Church Marketplace. Well, I, I had, you know, this is picnic day, and I thought, I, I'm going to plan a, a lighthearted message. I really did. And I sent the title and the text in on Monday afternoon for uh, an upbeat um, message because it's um, picnic day. Carrie and I were at Belk's, and I found some white shoes on sale for $39.99, and I thought that'd be fun for picnic day. So I got me some white shoes. Every Baptist preacher ought to have some white shoes. I'm going to get a white belt for next summer, I think. Some of you remember those. <laughs> Billy's got a white belt. I guarantee you he's got a white belt. <laughs> but, I had, but something happened on, uh, to my heart on Tuesday, and I, um, I changed the topic. And um, There is evil in our world, with evil with a capital E, that, a reality that emanates from a, a real place. Uh, called hell. Uh, there is mental illness that is pervasive, and, and obviously most mentally ill people are not a danger to anyone. But when you mix evil and mental illness, it is a, uh, it is a potentially deadly combination. And there is such a thing as white nationalism. More than just the idea, the, the erroneous sad idea that whites are better than everybody else, but even the willingness to go, to take extreme measures uh, to try to ensure uh, genuine segregation and even a, a white society. That's white nationalism, and it is real. And there is hatred. There's hatred. White people who hate people of color, and people of color who hate white people and other people of color. And there are people who hate people who don't think like they do, and there's plenty of hatred to go around. And, and then there's despair. There, there's this widespread and deep despondency, this loneliness and hopelessness. And you mix evil and mental illness and white supremacy and hatred and despondency or despair. And you have a nation that is uh, embroiled in 
the most uh, divisive, uh, even deadly uh, kind of situation that I remember in the 60s were tough, if you remember the 60s. But this is a tough time uh, for our country. And what can you and I do? Well, I believe we can do something, and it starts up on the roof. And I'm tempted to break into song, but I'm not. Acts 10, chapter, nine, chapter 10, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, and they are the friends of Cornelius, we'll meet him soon. They were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming, being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean like this stuff. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up off the roof and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people, though he was not Jewish, he was a Gentile. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you, ask you to come to his house so that he could hear you, what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. And what happened at Cornelius' house blew Peter's mind and transformed his heart and changed Christian history. Peter uh, inherited this belief from generations that, that the Jewish people were in as far as God was concerned, and the Gentile people were out as far as God was concerned. And then, he, and then God showed him this, this surreal smorgasbord suspended in a sheet. And God said, eat up, Peter. Peter said, oh, no, Lord, I, I consider this cuisine unkosher. I deem this dinner undesirable. I find this food unfit and easy now, God said. Don't call anything that I have created unfit. And he was still scratching his confused head when, when some men shouted from downstairs from the door and said, is, is this where Peter lives? And and he went down, he got off the roof, and he went down and met them. And, and that visit to Cornelius' house literally changed the course of Christian history. And there are three things from this story I believe are important for us this morning. One, Peter was not responsible for the attitude he had inherited. Two, uh, Peter needed a changed heart. And three, Peter had to get up off the roof. 
Let's take them one by one. First, Peter was not at fault for his initial attitude about Jews and Gentiles. He had inherited that. And we're not, we're not at fault for our initial attitudes either about differences among people. There are two words I want you to remember under this point. One is ignorance. The other is affinity. Ignorance. Let's talk about ignorance. Ignorance does not mean stupidity. It means lack of understanding or lack of information. It means as of yet, not enlightened, if you will. And so Peter was just ignorant. He didn't know. He'd never been to a Gentile's house. And so he didn't. He didn't know. He'd inherited something. It wasn't his fault for having inherited it. A wrong attitude about people different from us, uh, that initial wrong attitude, that, you know, that's, ignorance is not sin. Sin is the willingness to remain in our ignorance. You know, some people are ignorant of Huntsville. I've got a friend outside our church in our city who's responsible for recruiting people from outside the southeast in big numbers to come to Huntsville. When they do their, like, orientation sessions, they, they do a, a survey, and they always ask them their opinion. What is your opinion of Huntsville, Alabama? On a scale of one to five, with one being poor and five being wonderful, he said it will average a two-point something. That's failing. But then when they're exposed to Huntsville, they do the survey again, he said, and it's a four-point something. That's like an A in my book. They just don't know how wonderful you and I are until they, <laughs> until they come. And then they find they're just ignorant. It doesn't mean they're stupid. It means that as of yet, they don't, they don't know. Peter wasn't, it wasn't a sin to have heard and inherited this sense that we, we Jewish people are, are, are different and special. It, it would have been a sin to remain in that ignorance. The second word is affinity, and we're all wired to like people like us, affinity groups, people with whom we have something in common. That's just the way we're wired, and sometimes it, it, it plays out in terms of team sports. You know, your school team, that's we identify. So if you're a JSU fan and you're on vacation in Montana and you see somebody with a Gamecock cap on, you, you're probably going to say, hey, go Gamecock, something like that. And that's a, that's a good thing. It's almost football season. One reason I, I love being an official is I feel like I'm part of a group. I'm one of the guys. And to be there, five of us, and sometimes seven of us on the field, and all those people encouraging us in the fans, in the stands. And, and not only do I get to wear this really cool uh, shirt. We used to wear knickers. We don't wear knickers anymore. That was really hip and really cool. But I get to be one of the guys. And I got to tell you, all kidding aside, that feels good to be to be one of the guys. And we're wired to, to enjoy things that are familiar and people that are familiar and to enjoy our affinity groups. But sometimes it, it gets out of hand and sometimes it, you know, something good turns into something bad. November the 15th, 2017, the Mobile, Alabama Police Department made national news when they arrested an Alabama fan. And this is true, Google it. Arrested an Alabama fan who had shot an Auburn fan in the thigh because they'd had a, an argument over which team, which football team was best. Isn't that crazy? The crazy thing, Ken, is that they were arguing over something so obvious. 
Right? I mean, that, that seems what, that's just, a, that's hard to imagine. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's worse than that. Sometimes people who are different hate each other and, and hurt each other. This wiring, this, this longing for affinity, to fit in, to belong, it's not a bad thing. But sometimes it gets out of hand. My point here is that Peter was not responsible for what he inherited. He, he inherited ignorance, but his sin was not in being ignorant. His sin was, would have been had he remained intentionally in that ignorance. And, and affinity, for him to feel at home among his Jewish brothers and sisters, that's a good thing. It, it was a, it's a bad thing, though, when it turns into hurt and hatred. So, uh, one, Peter was not responsible for his initial attitude. Second, Peter needed uh, a heart change. Columbine. If you're 25 years old or older, that word still haunts you. April 20th, 1999, two 12th graders went into Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, and, and they shot 13 people, they killed 13 and injured 20, and then they turned their guns on themselves and, and took their own lives. To that point, it had been the worst school shooting in, a, in the history of the United States. There have been four worse in terms of body count since. But it shook the nation, and we were all looking for answers, and we were demanding of our politicians answers. And then and I, on, the news, on the news, I heard a congressman say these words. The solution to this kind of problem is not to be found on Capitol Hill. The only solution to this problem is changed hearts. I, I ran and got a piece of paper and a pen and I wrote those words. The solution to this kind of problem is not to be found on Capitol Hill. The only solution to this problem is changed hearts. I don't know what the congressman exactly meant. I don't know if he know all that all the implications of that, but he's right and Peter needed a changed heart and the hope for our nation is changed the hearts, and let's be real careful here, not to assume that the answer is somebody else's changed hearts. The only heart I have any say over is mine. And the answer, an answer, uh, to the hurt and the hatred in America is Psalm 51, Lord, consider my heart. And see if there be any wicked way in me. If there's just a little vestige, if there's just a, an ounce of hatred and prejudice left over. If there's just an, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Not in that community. And not those people. But if every Christian in America would pray Psalm 51 about the state of our country and it's it's hate and it's hurt. I think, I think it'd go a long way. Lord, just create in me a clean heart. Peter was not responsible for his initial attitude, but Peter needed a new heart. And three, Peter had to get off his roof. Peter had to get off his roof and walk into a world where he was uncomfortable, 
a world where he was uncertain as to whether he would be welcomed. You with me? Peter left the comfort of his surroundings and went into a world where he was not sure he'd be comfortable and was not sure he'd be welcomed. Peter had to get off his roof. It's too easy to sit around on the roof. You know, we can sit around on the roof and assign blame. That's too easy. It's too easy for Democrats to sit around on the roof and blame Republicans. And it's too easy for Republicans to sit around on the roof and blame Democrats. We can sit around on our self-righteous roofs and assign blame. But there are two problems with that. One, no problem ever was solved just because we assign blame. And two, if I assign blame, then I absolve myself of any responsibility. If it's this person's fault or that group's fault, then I don't, I don't really have to I don't really have to do anything. So, uh, we're going to have to, if you and I are going to make a difference and do more than complain and lament and assign blame, we're going to have to, we're going to get off our roofs and do something. Here's some suggestions. Number one, teach your children and grandchildren well. Teach them intentionally. Teach them not to hate. Teach them Jesus loves all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. Really? Teach them that they're special, but teach them that they ain't specialer than people who aren't like them. Teach them that they're special, but they ain't specialer than people who are not like them. Teach your children, too. Make sure everybody is welcome here. I don't have all the answers to race relations in, in this country. I don't know the answer to immigration, but this I believe with all my heart. God never intended for Sunday morning to be the most segregated part of the week in America. I believe that God never intended that the church would be the most segregated or at least one of the most segregated institutions in our country. We're lagging behind our worldly culture on race. And at least we can make sure that everybody is welcome here, regardless of the hue of their skin or the accent of their tongue. And that means going out of our way. It means being intentional about inviting people and welcoming people. We are going to have to make sure that everybody is welcome here. Three, what can you do? Invite someone to a meal who is different from you. Gwen Walker gave me a copy of a wonderful book titled Unified. It's, the, it's co-authored by Senator Tim Scott, who's an African-American Democrat senator from South Carolina, and Trey Gowdy, who is a white, until recently, Republican congressman from South Carolina. They have a, an unusual, an unlikely, I should say, an unlikely friendship, but a deep friendship. And from that book, we read, invite somebody to a meal who's different from you. Simply say, I'd like to have a conversation. I'd like to get to know you, and I'd like to understand your perspective. I'll let you choose what we talk about. We're not going to argue. We won't correct each other. We won't rebuke each other, and we won't try to talk over one another. My main purpose will be to listen, and let's see where we go 
from there. Would you be willing to have an intentional conversation with somebody who is different and mainly listen? Teach your children. Make sure everybody's welcome here. Invite someone to a meal who's different. And then fourth, make sure no one feels lonely. This is something maybe you didn't expect to hear in this sermon. Make sure nobody's lonely. There's evil. There, there is mental illness. There is white nationalism. There's hatred. But there's also deep and widespread despondency, despair, hopelessness, and loneliness. On Tuesday, I was listening uh, to NPR, All Things Considered. Not Fox News. I'm listening to NPR on this day. And Jillian Peterson a criminologist at Hamlin University in Minnesota and founder of the nonpartisan think tank, The Violence Project, has interviewed lots of living mass shooters and people who know them and has come to understand that most of them are suicidal. Listen. We can show about 80% were actively suicidal, meaning actively suicidal means they have planned or at least or, or attempted suicide before the mass shooting. 80% were actively suicidal, and other research, research supports her. Now, she says the vast majority of people who are suicidal don't attack others. But she says a tiny minority, minority of people considering suicide go down the path of violence before others. She has come to think of mass shootings as a form of suicide. They're angry, horrible suicides that take a lot of people with them, she says. And then there was another story on Tuesday in a Presbyterian newsletter that noted our problem is more complex than policy. But it has to do with an epidemic of loneliness. There is indeed an epidemic, a Western epidemic of loneliness. In England, in January, then Prime Minister Theresa May established a cabinet position, the Minister of Loneliness. We would call it Secretary of Loneliness because it's an epidemic. Look at all the lonely people, the Beatles sang. Where do they all come from? Well, they come from everywhere, from all walks of life. And there are so many churches in America, nobody should be lonely. We can at least make sure that everybody knows they are of value, and nobody has to prove their value by demeaning someone else. And nobody has to prove their value by going down in a blaze of glory, that nobody has to prove their value by belittling others. We can at least make sure that nobody is lonely. There's evil with a capital E, and there's mental illness, and there is white nationalism, and there is hatred, and there is deep and widespread despair, hopelessness, and loneliness. And surely we can address loneliness. This week on Tuesday, I, I got a phone call uh, from a young African-American minister that I, I didn't know, still don't know. I will meet him this afternoon. He said there's going to be a panel on Sunday afternoon to address this, um, the state of our country, particularly in response to the two, two mass shootings last uh, weekend. I didn't know him. I didn't know what it would be like. I didn't know if I could bring anything to the table. I didn't know if anybody would come. But I had this, and I'm telling you, honest truth, during that conversation, in my head was this message echoing, do something. You've got to do 
something. And so I, I said, yes, I'll, I'll be there. Tuesday night, um, <clears throat> I got this thing in my head that I never think about. I'm a, I'm a member, of Ro- member of Rotary, and uh, we had this thing called the Strive Program. It's, we mentor. And at the beginning of the school year, every year they make pleas for, for volunteers to mentor. We go into area high schools to kids who need a nudge in the right direction, who are at an important juncture of their lives, and they need a good influence, uh, somebody to help them. They have potential, but they're not reaching it, and they need a nudge in the right direction. And, you know, at the, at the beginning of every year, they make pleas. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good thing, but I'm too busy. And so by the time the person who's making the plea sits down, I'm, in my head, I'm off to something else. And I never think about that. But Tuesday night, I couldn't, get the, I couldn't get that Strive Mentor program out of my mind. So by Thursday, I had volunteered to be a Strive Mentor. I, I don't want to be melodramatic. Am I going to change the world? Am I going to meet somebody that needs a nudge in the right direction who might be at an intersection that, where it could go other way, either way? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But, but I've got to do I've got to do something. Now, I know that uh, this is a, a great church and well-educated and 210 years old this month, I think. And you would expect more from the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Huntsville than this, but I'm going to give you the best I've got when it comes to our response uh, to the hate and the hurt in our country, and it's two words. Do something. There's some things you've thought of that I wouldn't think of. And if you'll ask him to, I believe the one who loves our country more than we do will prompt you to to do something. There's there's evil and there's and there's mental illness and there's white nationalism and there's hatred and there's despondency. And I've got to be honest, it feels like most of us are sitting around on the roof lamenting. Democrats blaming Republicans and Republicans blaming Democrats. I'm ready to get off the roof. I, won't, I can't do everything, but I can do something. And so I invite you to join me at the door where the people of Cornelius' house have come to say, would you come to our house? It might just, it might just, it might just change, um, it might just change history. History.